Welcome to Interrevolutionary Radio with your host, Beth Green. This is James Maynard, your co-host. Today's topic, Corporate Criminals Get Away with Murder. Who's Fighting for Us? Meet Mike Papantonio, a lawyer who fights and wins. Did you know that DuPont Chemical knowingly poisoned and killed people for decades through irresponsibly dumping chemicals into land and water? That the lead industry bragged that lead was good for your health, even though they knew that lead pipes permanently harmed people, especially children? If these kinds of stories make you mad, sick, or just want to cry, you'll want to hear Mike Papantonio. He's a lawyer and has spent his life fighting corporate criminals. He's taken on DuPont, plus pharmaceutical drug litigation, asbestos, breast implants, factory farming, securities fraud, tobacco, and other such cases, and has received numerous multi-million dollar verdicts on behalf of victims of corporate malfeasance. He's also the host of Ring of Fire on radio and TV. This guy is fighting for us, and he's trying to get other lawyers to do the same. Now I'll learn about Mike and the many David and Goliath fights we are winning. And let's ask Mike why those responsible are not in jail. And yeah, now, yeah. Here's I Beth. Know. <laughs> That's a great question, James. Well, you know, I'll, I, I... Wait, 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 Mike. Wait, Mike. Uh, what I wanted to, what we do first on this show is we do the news of the inner revolution, and I want to uh, invite you to. Share as we do the news if something comes to you. And then when we're done with the news and we uh, okay. talk gotcha. to you only for the rest of the time. And uh, uh, with the inner revolution, for those of you who are new to our show, is about oneness, accountability, and mutual support. You know, a couple of months ago, we changed the name of our organization to the innerrevolution.org because I was seeing these signs everywhere that people were having a a revolution in consciousness, that people are really getting it, that we are one, we need to act that way, and that we are accountable for what we do. You'd never know that by corporate malfeasance. And that we need to become mutually supportive. We support the whole and the whole supports us. But lately, I have to tell you, I have been so down. (laughs) You know, I'm really struggling to stay up and to remember that there are good things going on on this planet too. So we're starting out today with some cheerful news of the in a revolution, because I think some of the, th- the things that Mike is going to talk about are going to make your blood boil. But we are winning, and I'm, you know, I want to talk to Mike because I want to get happy again. So, <laughs> so feel free. We have a couple of news stories this week, and James, take it away. Okay, first from the Guardian, February the 29th. There's a story called "This Is My Country." Muslim candidate aims to break boundaries in Minnesota. Two years after a brutal attack. Ilhan Omar returns to run for a district seat, and if elected, she would become the first Muslim woman to hold office in the state. At a Minnesota party caucus in 2014, where she was working as an aide, Ilhan Omar was severely beaten and concussed by seven or eight people after she had been warned not to show up by supporters of the incumbent office holder. Two years after the attack, she has returned to that same district caucus as a candidate on March 1st. If she is elected, it is believed she will be the first Muslim East African woman to hold elected office in the United States. And to win the seat in the State House would mean overcoming a string of identifiers that have become slurs for some candidates in the United States presidential election. Refugee, immigrant, woman, Muslim. Boo. All of these. <laughs> <laughs> Refugee, boo. Woman, boo. <laughs> Omar states, All of these identities that I carry are going to be an obstacle. I wear a hijab, 
and that's going to be a problem. But once one person is able to do that, it then allows other people to dream too. Her interest is in helping minority communities navigate their government by conducting educational outreach efforts. She said while her family was always interested in politics, she is part of a, quote, shift in young people like myself who are immigrants and are excited about getting involved in the system, while a lot of our elders are focused on being a good citizen and voting only. For me, this is my country. This is for my future, for my children's future, and for my grandchildren's future to make our democracy more vibrant, more inclusive, more accessible, and transparent, which is going to be useful for all of us. Omar's family has fought for political representation, engendering in Omar a deep enthusiasm and optimism about the importance of the vote. Omar moved to Minneapolis in 1997 after having fled her birth country of Somalia and lived in a refugee camp in Kenya for four years. Beth? Well, you know, sometimes it's embarrassing when I listen to the positive news of the inner revolution because <laughs> you look at what some people have overcome and what they're doing and you say, okay, what's your problem, right? But this is a woman who's concussed and beaten and and she was in a refugee camp, and look what she's gone through. And she's turned this, uh, uh, I'm, I don't know, I'm allowed to say this word on the radio. So she's turned shit, turned shit into fertilizer. And um, she is clearly an interrevolutionary in the sense that she is not taking the status quo as is. And she is practicing oneness, accountability, and mutual support. And I, I'm just thrilled to hear this story, and we wish her well in every way, and I, I, I think that our listeners are going to be really excited to hear about this. You know, yes. uh, Beth, uh, yeah. uh, uh, James, I don't know whether you have had the opportunity to read David Nywert's book, The Eliminationist, but he does such an extraordinary job dealing with this concept of otherness. That is, the notion that there, the, the people who are different, people who don't speak the same, people who look yeah. different, people who have different ideas. The eliminationist does a really good job talking about this very topic that you're just raising. And that is, the, the, this book, Eliminationist by Nywert, says that it's, it's very important the, this, these individuals that are being treated with this otherness, this victimization, it's very important that they absolutely speak up. Yes. Sometimes there's a tendency to say, gee, I don't want to walk into that because it puts the light on me more squarely. But Nywert is a brilliant man, and if this, this book tells the story. And basically it is that here we have... Uh, you know, you always have these these types. Uh, Trump is the, the type of the day that convinces kind of the village idiot to walk around with a stick and poke people in the eye yeah. with that stick and then convince other village idiots that they should do the same. Well, the interesting thing is when you look at the psychology of all that, the best thing to do is speak up and lash out. It is not to remain silent. Berlin 1939 showed that. And so uh, time after time, there is this, I suppose it's a human, it's a notion. And the notion is, let me sit very quietly. Yes. And maybe people won't notice me. That is the wrong thing to do. And that's why I love to hear this story that, you know, they're speaking up and they're saying, damn it, this is my country. And we stand for a lot of great things. And let me tell you what they are. Yes, I totally agree with you, Mike. And, you know, one of the, the things about the inner revolution is that it requires us to practice the habit of courage. 
And without that, everything is going down the tubes. I'm, as I listen to the Republican, uh, I don't, you can't call it a debate. Uh, it's, it's like, I, I feel like I'm watching a lynch mob yeah. uh, where people are actually enjoying or watching a gladiator spectacle that people are really getting into the worst quality of themselves. And we have to, we have to speak up. We all have to. So, right. uh, yeah, but I want James we, to tell us our next story, our next story, because I want to get to you, Mike, and your okay. story. So, yeah. all right, James, take it away. Okay. And this story is from the Middle East, and it comes from The Guardian, February the 29th, which is Another uh, positive week. Middle East story. Can you believe it, Mike? Yeah. <laughs> take mm. it away, James. Mm. Speaking of elections, uh, Iran is set to elect a record number of women into parliament. With reformist-backed candidates securing a sweeping victory in Tehran and moderates leading in provinces, a record number of women are set to enter the next Iranian parliament. As many as 20 women are likely to enter the 290-seat legislature known as the Malis, the the most ever. Eight of the women elected this time are on a reformist-backed list of 30 candidates standing in the Tehran constituency known as the List of Hope. Among them is Parvana Salashori, a 51-year-old sociologist and university professor originally from the south of Iran. Salashori has spoken out about discrimination against women in Iran, pressed many women's rights advocates. I'm sorry, pleasing many women's rights advocates. She also said women should be able to choose whether or not to wear the hajib, a taboo subject in the Islamic Republic. When asked by an Italian journalist what it meant to belong to reformists in Iran, she said, it means that we want change. It means that we want to empower our women. We want to empower our young people. And we want to grow our economy. Salashuri said she wanted to fight discrimination. There are some Islamic rules. We have to talk about them. We have to negotiate. We are here to fight against discrimination. Asked about the biggest challenge facing women in Iran, she said, the rules and the laws. We have got many problems. Divorce, the problem of unemployment of women, violence against women. It's very bad. The violence is at home and in society. We have to remove all these kinds of violence. Although women can vote and drive in Iran, discriminatory laws persist. Women are required to wear the hijab, and in court, their testimony is worth only half that of a man. Well, we weigh about half, so that explains it, right? (laughs) 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 They no longer have that thing of, it's his word against mine, his word prevails. (laughs) They also face inequality in inheritance rights, but women have a strong presence in civil society and a number of them have spent time in jail for advocating women's rights. Women in Iran have held senior government jobs. Iran currently has a number of female vice presidents and one female ambassador. Beth? Well, this is another example of what Mike is talking about. You know, people who are being attacked, who are fighting back. And when you see what's gone on in the Middle East with uh, Egyptian women and Iranian women and so many other women, and not just women, of course, but also minorities, uh, it, it is encouraging to see people fighting back. And that's the, sometimes the only hope we have. So bring us our third story, which is our last one for today, which is like totally different. Yes, this is from here at home, positive, interesting news. And this comes from one of our listeners, Tracy. This appeared in edweek.com February the 17th. Principals are urged to shadow students. 
A group of educational organizations is challenging school leaders around the country to spend one day shadowing individual students so they can develop greater empathy for their charges' experiences. Participants in the Shadow a Student Challenge sign up to follow one child for a full day during the week of February 29th to March 4th, eating lunch with them, attending classes, and maybe even riding the, even riding the bus with them. Those taking part will connect on social media to share what they learn and will get resources from the organizers. Susie Wise, the K-12 Lab Network Director for Stanford's DDOT School, was asked, what is the difference between following one student and the day-to-day life of being in and out of classrooms? And she says, you're intending to really shift your position to not be the leader who is directing traffic and working on 47 things at once. One of the things you get to see is the space in between, for instance. You see transitions, and you see posture. Some of the leaders who've done it have been surprised with how passive the student's day is, how much sitting there is, how many transitions there are that don't make much sense. You don't see that when you're looking at a master schedule and you're in the leader mode. It's very important work to make sure all of the pieces fit together, but then you have to also sit in it and see how does this work for the student. Beth. Well, what I think is uh, is very hopeful about that is that there people are beginning to think about empathy more, and to see what things are, and, and we're breaking down that some of that hierarchical view of the world is like I'm on top and I know best. But what I'd like to see, I'd like to see them shadowing those kids home, and I think if some of the teachers shadowed those kids home, went home with them, and lived their lives, we would begin to break down some of the racial stereotyping that we have in our country, as you see what some of these minority and poor white kids go through to try to just get through their day and have an education. And I think that would revolutionize the educational system in and of itself. <laughs> but uh, so thank you. And, uh, and uh, Mike, I want to know where your camp compassion came from. You know, since this is what we seem to be talking about today. And thank you for the tip about that book. I hadn't heard about it. That's really great. Um, what I'm wondering about is, you know, most of most people, and of course, I'm not going to be one of those people, right? Think of lawyers as evil, <laughs> mm, yeah. right? Well, you know? until they need one, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, sometimes need... it's after they meet them. Like, oh, I see. If it's the divorce lawyer of your, you know, former wife or something who's yeah. asking you for alimony or that kind of thing. But they don't think they think of uh, of lawyers as evil, and they don't think of lawyers as fighting for people's rights. And I remember back in the '60s when I was, you know, first. Well, I wasn't first an activist, but I was very active uh, in the movement. There were all kinds of radical lawyers who were defending, uh, you know, black people, uh, you know, civil rights movement, uh, the anti-war movement. People, I was saved over and over by lawyers who worked for free for people in the movement. And, um, you know, I had a very, very different view of lawyers than, than most people do. They don't know about that, that um, tradition that so many lawyers have. But how did you become such a fighter? And I want the inside scoop. Of like who you are, well, where just, you came from. You know, it really, Beth, it, it has a lot to do with how you came up. I, I was raised by eight different families, eight different eight. families all over central Florida that were all back. They used to call them, uh, they used to call them yellow dog Democrats. And they were, they were people who were, you know, hugely blue collar, uh, working people mattered. 
And, you know, when you're raised in that environment and all you see is good, all you see is the good side of that where, you know, they're taking you in, they're taking care of you and, and, and you come away with that, they, they instill so much of that in you. It may be, you know, you pick up in bits and pieces, but for whatever reason, by the time I uh, even hit my senior year in college, uh, you know, I had, I was... I was thinking about being a, a, a journalist and foreign correspondent. That was my major at University of Florida. And somebody talked me into um, remembering uh, the book uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. And they mm-hmm. said, why don't, you, why don't you go meet somebody? And they, I said, sure. I'll, who is this person you want me to meet? It was an extraordinary trial lawyer. that, that is, During his time, probably one of the most premier claimants lawyers in America. His name Perry Nichols. He was in South Florida. And I remember going to meet him. And I was, like I said, I was on a route to be a journalist. And he he, he was sitting in front of uh, this whole shelf of library of books of all different kinds. And he was on a dialysis. Uh, he was using dialysis at the time. It was on the last part of his life. And I guess I wasn't really sold on the idea I wanted to be an attorney. But I remember asking him, I said, well, um, it kind of an inartful way. I said, what do you think made you such a great and important lawyer? And he yeah. says, son, you see all these books behind me? He said, I've read them. And there was Conrad and Steinbeck and Kafka and uh, Hemingway and just every kind of great classical writer that you can imagine along with all that. And he said, all of these ideas matter. They matter to me. And that struck home with me because those great ideas are what is, has shaped my career. And that is, uh, you have a kinship with certain people and you don't have a kinship with other people. And I never had a kinship with taking my skills and going to work for corporate America. I had plenty of offers coming out of law school to do that. I could have gone, you know, virtually anywhere I wanted to. But I was a trial lawyer. And then trial lawyers, there's very few of us here. You talk about lawyers generally. Well, trial law to do what I do for a living, there's, it's less than, less than uh, maybe a half a percent of all lawyers do what I do as a specialty uh, in, in trial law. So I guess that was, the, you know, those, those bits and pieces put me in a posture to where I would never be comfortable um, uh, on the other side of, of people. And, yeah. you know, I, I've written three books about it. I wrote uh, In Search of Atticus Finch, wrote uh, uh, Clarence Darrow, The Journeyman, wrote... Uh, book called, well, several of them that deal with this concept of what are the choices we make with our skills? How do we use our skills? How will we feel good about using our skills at the end of our lives? And I think of, uh, you know, Clarence Darrow was one time interviewed and he had the only job that he'd ever made money with, Beth, ever in his career. It really only made money. Yeah. And he, he was working for an and Railroad and they came to him and they said, you know, we want you to defend the, the railroad against this this widow who has lost uh, you know lost her husband and she's in, 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 in and, and we want you to, to to be on the side of the railroad and he said you know what I, I quit he said what I was feeling in my what I was feeling in my heart and what I was feeling in my mind did not line up with what they wanted me to do with my hands and yeah. you know that's part of it you just have to make those decisions and you have to stick with it I mean it, if you don't have a commitment to do the type of thing I do. Uh, <laughs> you're in the wrong business because <laughs> it's stacked against you every day. 
You know, that's fascinating. And, and what you're talking about is really, really inspiring. But I got caught on something that you said at the beginning of your sharing. And I, I've got to go back to that because I'm sure other people are wondering too. So before we go on to these inspiring things, what do you mean you were raised by eight families? Well, it was just a, it was a dysfunctional kind of family situation. So, but it worked out. It worked out really well. I mean, there's nothing negative about it. It was all very positive. Uh, taught me uh, to be a writer. Taught me to be a, a musician. Uh, taught me to fly really? airplanes. Be an artist. Really? Yeah. Was because this you, sequential? You were you were in eight different families at different times, or yeah, eight. Yes. Oh, well, that's remarkable because you remind me a little bit of that woman. Uh, that Somali woman that we were just talking about, somebody who took what could have been really a devastating experience and turned it for the good. And by the way, I really identify with you because I grew up in a family where we were poor, we were working class, and I, you know, I never forgot what that was like. <laughs> yeah, you don't. You remember no. those decent people that did so much for you. Oh, yes, and and worked so hard and tried so hard. And when I went to school, I went to school to learn history so I could figure out how to change the system. Mm-hmm. I didn't I never thought about going to school to make money. I mean, money wasn't even in my mind. And it's sort of sad that so many people, you know, I meet young people today and they're they're already planning their retirement. And they haven't done anything yet to retire from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that 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 is that is a that's a cultural blight right now. I, it's true. I may, yeah, perhaps millennials will vary that a little bit. I'm seeing some promise there. So. Isn't that wonderful? I, I mean, I'm so encouraged by the Bernie Sanders campaign just to see the young people out there and saying something is wrong. We need to do something. Whether he has all the answers or not isn't really the point. The point is that there is some movement, and that is exciting. And and seeing these millennials who are really standing up to racism is also encouraging because what we're seeing, and you know, is pretty bad. You know, the consciousness uh, that we've fed in this country. But back to you. So then, how did you move from that into your David and Goliath career? Well, the first time uh, there was a, a lawyer uh, by the name of Ron Motley who just passed away a couple of years ago, a wonderful trial lawyer. He and I w- were friends, and he built the uh, built the cases against the asbestos industry. He was more responsible for building that case than any lawyer in the country. And I just happened to be handling those cases here in the South. And uh, the the so my first taste of having to go toe-to-toe with the, uh, with the largest corporations in the world, Owens Corning, Fiberglass, Celotex, uh, W.R. Grace, came from that. It came from, it came from uh, being introduced to a, to, to a situation where you, you go to a courtroom, and if you do your job, and if you are as prepared as you need to be, it doesn't make any difference how big that corporation is. Mm. It, and uh, so what, we st- what I started, I guess at that point, Beth, I started seeing the most horrendous corporate conduct. I started yeah. seeing documents where CEOs were writing, uh, one, one document said, these men make a good living with asbestos. I don't care if they die with asbestos. Oh, my well, God. So that, that was my first introduction oh. into what really goes on with corporate America, and I oh. never looked back. And, and, uh. and, and every, every, every time I think 
that that's the worst document I will ever see, I end up seeing 10 more from other companies that are even worse than that. That so, is frightening. Yeah, it is. It's terrifying. It is that mentality that um, it's what ruins capitalism in so many ways, Beth. Exactly. Capitalism is a wonderful system if it is regulated. And it's only when we fall asleep <laughs> and we believe that corporate America is there to police itself or we believe that government is going to do what they're supposed to do. If we start believing those lies, if we start believing that the media is going to tell the story and yeah. we're, going to be, we're going to be saved from this product that can cause blindness, we're going to be saved from this car that has the ability to explode uh, you know, with with impact, yeah. we're going to be we're going to be saved by 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 media. We're going to be saved by government. We're going to be saved by self policing, and the Americans are very naive, very naive where it comes to these issues. Beth, they yeah. it, I, I call it the ostrich concept. They, yes, it's too it's it's too horrible to confront, so they ignore it. Well, that is so true, and I think people want to believe that that is from the old days, like, oh, it's so yesterday, but it isn't. Oh, we no. just saw these uh, airbag cases where yeah. they knew that these airbags were dangerous, and this is just like today. It hasn't changed. By the way, were you an independent lawyer when you started handling this asbestos case, or were you in some kind of a corporation? I, I, I had just, I had just uh, gone to work for uh, uh, the firm that I'm with now. It was the oldest plaintiff's comp, uh, firm in America at the time, and it still is. Uh, it was started by Reuben Askew in Florida. And uh, so they, they needed a trial lawyer and hired me. And again, it, people, people don't understand this concept of what's the difference between a trial lawyer and another lawyer. It's a huge difference. Most, most office lawyers rarely go to court, if ever. They certainly don't pick juries and try cases. Yeah. So, uh, so they, needed, uh, they needed a trial lawyer, and they hired me to do that. Well, did they know what they were getting? I mean, when you took on this asbestos case, was your company saying, yes, great, go get them? Or would they think, could no, you keep this no. quiet? No, it was, it, was terri- <laughs> it was terrifying to them because they were taking on some of the biggest corporations in America. And the, it was a firm that did, you know, it, it had always been on, there on behalf of claimants, whether they were workers injured or union, union uh, issues. But they were always on the right side. But mm-hmm. it was moving from that to, okay, well, we're going to take on Pfizer. We're going to take on Merck. We're going to take yeah. on Dow Chemical. We're going to take on DuPont. And so that changed the culture around here dramatically. But that was 35 years ago, and we've never looked back. Well, I'm very grateful that you got to work with a group of people who took that attitude. Yeah, it was, it was a, a big break. A fellow named Fred Levin was a great visionary. He was, it's extraordinary, uh, Beth. It's, you know what it is? It's a story that, that we, a story tells us we have to believe in people. We have to believe their vision, when they have a vision that makes sense, we have to believe and invest in them enough to say, okay, go try it. Let's see how it goes. Hopefully everything's going to be okay and we'll support you as much as we can. And if it's not, we'll make it right. But most people don't do that. They're so afraid. Fred Levin, my partner, was never afraid of that. He said, Mike, you know, I know what you're up against here. Go do it. And so we built the biggest we built the biggest complex litigation firm in America, oh right my. here in little tiny Pensacola, Florida. Oh my God! You know you're bringing tears to my eyes, Mike. I yeah. mean, I was in so many situations where I was totally alone. I'll give you an example. I was expelled from Smith College, 
I was uh, I I got there when I was 16, and I was expelled in my the spring of that year for going on a ban the bomb demonstration. And uh, this mm. was back in the early 60s. You know, when there was no movement. And when uh, when I and it was without a hearing. It was crazy. I mean, the whole thing. It, and they made it look like I had cheated. And they told me they were yeah. going to punish me, and they were going to make sure I never got into another college. And you know, they'll teach me a lesson I'd never forget. And here I was, a little scholarship, Jewish scholarship kid, <laughs> you know, yeah. from New York City, right? And I was up against these, I mean, it felt like the, the, the biggest corporations in America to me and to my parents. And there was nothing, there was nobody who would take the case. Nobody would take yeah. our case. But look and, at the good that came out of it, Beth. Beth yeah. Green came out of that. <laughs> Beth Green, who now is talking about an issue and issues every day that, that affect people's lives. So it came around full circle, didn't it? Well, it did. And in fact, you know, um, it just sent me back into a whole series of experiences that I could very easily forget. But once I got over my depression, <laughs> mm. Mm. Uh, you know, I started fighting again. And, uh, you know, and the other good thing about it is it's kind of like in a very modified version of what you went through because I got to see that there really is a ruling elite in the U.S. because I was, you know, I was living in houses with these girls mm. that were traveling around the world with their parents and throwing their cashmere sweaters on the floor. And, uh, you know, it just made me aware. And then I heard about the social register. I didn't, I mean, I had already been a radical from nine years old because, I don't know, I was born with it. But to actually see it, was something astonishing, and to see anti-Semitism in action, it was an education that I, I haven't forgotten. So that's kind of like, you know, when you, you came up against it, and you just kept fighting. Well, well it is. Let, let me mention something, Beth, I think is, is important. When I, when I talk to a, a young lawyer who wants to be a trial lawyer, yeah. you, know, you know what I'm looking for? I'm looking for, do they have a life experience that's left them a little angry. Okay, mm. now a- anger that they can control, anger that doesn't manifest itself in an ugly way, that is a destructive way. Yeah. But anger that they can call on when they see people mistreated. Anger yes. that they can call on when they see the, the deck stacked so much yeah. against them and their client. Yeah. If they don't have that, if they don't have that, Beth, yeah. They'll never be a great activist like you are. They'll never be a great attorney. They'll never make the kind of changes and the kind of leaps that have to be made to really change culture. That is so right. That is so right. You need that fire in your belly. And, uh, you know, I was privileged to uh, have a lot of bad experiences in my life. <laughs> well, good. But That's- not only to have my own bad experiences, but to see the suffering of so many other people, you know, that I, I just, you know, I couldn't sleep at night. And I'm still carrying that. I'm probably going to carry that to my deathbed. That's, o- that's okay. That's yeah. okay because it does make you who you are, and that's why you're able to do what we're doing right now. Uh, but then you have to turn it into something for the good. And yeah. see, for, for me, I didn't really have that in the early days of the movement. I, there was just a lot of anger, a lot of anger, a lot of anger, and a lot of anger. And I finally just, like, collapsed. It's like it was almost like being in the Republican debate, you know, and um, I couldn't, you know, there I had finally had a meltdown and I went within and had to find another place in myself where mm-hmm. I turn it to the good like you're talking about. And I also honestly, I have compassion for the people who are doing these terrible things. I have to understand them. 
I have to try to get into their heads. We have to understand why so many white people today are are racist and are blaming blacks and immigrants and all of that. We have to understand well, what, 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 in order to work with it. Right, right. Okay. Well, let me let me address that. Okay. I and this may be completely contrary to what you know the issues that you typically typically talk about on your show, but I, I have a different I have a different concept of what the 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 modern 2016 progressive should be and should look like. First, and I look like from standpoint of how do they act? What do they do? What are they doing to improve to to improve this culture? What yeah. are they doing? It, it's no longer warm and fuzzy. What I, what I, for example, is not warm and fuzzy. It's, I know. it's not. It's not Birkenstock. I'm not. Uh, I'm not in the Shavasana uh, kind of position. You know, uh, <laughs> no Shiva, no Shavasana for me. It's uh, dishtree. And when I, when my dishtree is, who is it that's coming after the people that I care about? And when I focus on that, I don't. I don't try to say, "Well, gee, let me be compromising." You see that th- this no, is no, my no, big. No, I'm not talking about compromise. No, I, I, I know you're not. I know. That's I, what I I'm understand saying. exactly what you're saying. You know, it's like I went in and I try to understand human character. You know, you were ta- saying some really important things earlier about capitalism. And I think that what, what I say is that what ruins capitalism is the same thing that has ruined communism and has ruined everything else is the human ego. Mm. And the way that we are trained, you know, that there's an aspect of us that just is automatically, it's all about me and I really don't care about anybody else. And that's the human ego. And we either feed that or we feed the other part of us, which is all about cooperation, which is funny because that's what we're going to talk about next week. And so, you know, which part of us is being fed? But when you see people, you know, you have to hold people accountable for what they've done. And I want yeah. to know why these corporate criminals are not in jail for killing people. But we'll get yeah, to that in a minute. But let's finish this. But I think that, you know, it's we have to retrain people and understand. I, I am not for giving anybody a pass, believe me. But I do feel the need to understand. And if I get, oh, sometimes I get so angry that I think I'm going to lose my capacity to actually effectuate change. And then well, I have to pull myself back. We don't have to wear the same hat. Adam Beth, when I when I'm around my child, I don't have my I don't I don't have my slash and burn lawyer hat on. <laughs> when I'm in my home, I I am that person that that I can be proud of around my family, yeah. and that 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 should hold true for any progressive that's in the fight right now. What yeah. is killing the progressive movement? What's killing the Democrats right now? Yeah. is this need to feel we got to move towards compromise. We have to move towards the middle. It is what killed, it's what killed Obama's effectiveness. And yeah. I've just, it killed his effectiveness as, 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 a, as a president, both that and a GOP Congress now. Oh but my it, but God. It, but it, and racism. His, and racism. It, I, I get that. I get that. Yeah. But I want you to think back. I mean, it, it, it was a time, what is it that motivated you to say, I want to vote for, for this man? I, it was that he was saying, you know, there's some awful things that are taking place on Wall Street. We need to deal with it. And I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to send some people to prison. I'm going to change some things. Uh, or, you know, this, this notion of people being out of jobs and the blue-collar worker, they aren't, they aren't being treated right. And so on both, just those issues. First of all, after those words are spoken, we see TPP, we see extension of... 
uh, of trade trade yeah. agreement after trade agreement. On the issue of Wall Street, we see Eric Holder do nothing. We see Loretta Lynch do nothing. Yeah. Nobody goes to prison. And these people are criminal thugs. Yeah. So, so here's my point. Yeah. Here's my point. My <laughs> point is either we are who we say we are. And we're going to do these things that we talk about, and we're going to aggressively do them. We're not going to reach across the aisle more than a couple of times. And if nobody reaches back, then we're going to go in. We're going to cut and slash and do what we must do. Obama waited too long. And when it comes to how does that affect Hillary right now, it affects Hillary because Hillary has been, now Hillary has to overcome that. Progressives, people like me who understand the issues very well, we look at Hillary and say, gee whiz, are you just going to be an extension of what we just saw? Because if you are, then we're not going to move the ball for progressive concepts, progressive, uh, progressive ideas that need to be introduced into the spectrum of American culture and politics. Well, you know, you're having the, the discussion we're having is the argument that I have with myself every day. And by the way, I'm not talking at all about compromise because I believe in doing the right thing no matter what. I mean, if in, even if you're the only one left standing, or don't <laughs> you're not left standing. You do the right thing because it's the right thing. I'm talking about as as really trying to comprehend what goes on with people that causes us to be so mean spirited, so self centered, so ignorant of care of for other people, and it's how fear. do we shift? Fear. Exactly, and that is the ego and fear go hand in hand. Fear breeds hate, and hate hate breeds bad activity and bad action. Exactly. See, I made a video, for example, that was called White People, Who's Got Your Money? And I said, uh, this, I sent it out into the internet world to, for Trump supporters and people like them to say, look, you're being sold a bill of goods. I, ju- I want to scream, but instead of saying that, I said, well, you need to understand. You know, I've put out history lessons out on the Internet. You know, try to bring people to more awareness that even their own interests aren't being served by these, these despicable, um, hateful energies that are being riled up in our country today. So... That's how they come together for me, that I'm trying to do both. But I'm with you 100%, Mike, and I want to know why these people aren't in jail. Well, they're not in jail because of of the the infrastructure of our infrastructure of capitalism requires, and now infrastructure of our uh, election process requires that Democrats and Republicans alone reach out to people like Goldman and Sa- Goldman Sachs, J.P. Morgan, and we've made them we've made them. Uh, kings, we've we've put them in control of government. They're, they're, government is not in control of government anymore. I mean, that is such a naive. I mean, these I people, that, this these, this notion that gee, government is determining what happens in our lives. Nothing is farther from the truth. That's it, it's, so true. It's it's the ugly, and and you see it mostly in the courtroom, Beth. I see it every day, wow. some form or fashion, in the courtroom, where government has dropped the ball, not from negligence. Government has dropped the ball because they've been ordered to. They've been commanded mm-hmm. to directly or indirectly by Wall Street and corporate America and the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. It, you can follow the money on every single yeah. story. 
Yes. Uh, whether it's the DuPont story, the case I'm trying up in, in, in Columbus, Ohio right now, uh, whether it's the uh, Zarelto story, the Yaz story, the, uh, any number of pharmaceutical stories, whether it's the Pinto story, where the U.S. government understood. Now, the thing about this, the U.S. government understood for a year and a half that the Pinto was exploding. They even had, they even knew that Ford had calculated how many people can die, yes. burn, burn to death in their car, and, and Ford can still make a profit. The government knew about that, but they chose to do nothing because they were ordered, they were commanded to do nothing, not directly by Ford, but by the culture that surrounds Ford. And so this happens in every case. I mean, this is not me speculating. My God, I see it every single day. Yeah. I mean, yeah. if people could come to court with me, they'd be horrified. They'd be, they'd yeah. be so cynical they could barely exist most days because they would understand that, that they're so wrong in their naivety about how, how the system works. That is so true. And people think the government is prob- the problem, but government is not the problem. No, it's it's not. what's behind the government. Yeah. <laughs> That's yeah, the government- problem. It- yeah. Using the government against the people is the problem. You know, we- I learned about you through the DuPont case. And so we've talked a little bit about that. And I'd love you to talk about, because I know you're one of the people who won a settlement. And we had that other lawyer. How do you pronounce his name? Rob Ballot? Yeah, Rob Ballot. Right, right. Oh. Yeah, Rob, Rob actually hired me to try the case. Again, my role is, is in that has been to try, to try the case. Rob did an extraordinary job putting the case together. I mean, he really did. Uh, but then... Let's lost, tell everybody so, about that case because... Yeah, yeah. So, so this was a case. This was a case where DuPont, for 50 years... Uh, was dumping between fifty and seventy thousand pounds of a product called C8, which is a poison. They 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 call it a poison. The company themselves call it a toxic poison. But they were dumping it in the Ohio River when other companies who used the product were incinerating it to make it go away totally. And 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 there was no risk to incinerating, but it was more expensive. It cost uh, it cost it would have cost Dupont. Eight cents more per pound to incinerate it. Gosh, so in, rather poor than incinerate, yeah. So so rather than incinerate, they said, well, let's just dump it in the in the Ohio River. Well, it then went into people's drinking water because it ended up in the aquifer, and it goes from the aquifer to the drinking water. And 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 then we find out probably some of the best epidemiologists and scientists in the world said, yes, it causes testicular cancer, it causes kidney cancer, it causes ulcerative colitis, it causes thyroid disease, and a host of other things. But you see, there was no surprise to that, because the very thing those scientists found just a matter of year, uh, two years, two, two and a half years ago, the very thing those scientists found, DuPont had known about for 50 years. That, so, isn't that, okay, did everybody get that DuPont knew for 50 years. Knew it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's no... Yeah, no question. They we actually we have the documents. The documents they're talking about. Gee, we you know we we tested monkeys with C eight today and all of them died. We right. tested beagles today and all of them died. Uh, it, so and we know it causes cancer, but don't tell the public. As a right. matter of fact, not only did they not tell the public, they took they undertook a campaign to mislead the public and intentionally mislead the public about the facts and tell the public that everything's okay, that C8 won't hurt you. They did that during a time that they were telling their employees 
that this stuff will cause cancer. They were telling the general public that everything was okay during a time when lab, when lab animals were dying by the dozens from C8 cancer. Which already annoys me. They have to kill so many animals to know what's obvious. Anyway, well, please they didn't go even on. Have, they didn't have to do that here. No. But, but the point is this. The point yeah. is, you know, mom and pop sitting at home, their reaction, oh, gee whiz, there's no way a corporation would do that. And, and right. you may find this extraordinary, but the thing I have to overcome when I'm trying a case like this is the facts are so overwhelming, they're so ugly, that the jury, I have to get the, the jury to understand that this is real. This, <laughs> isn't a, this is not a reality. Science team. fiction, right. Yeah, this is not science fiction. <laughs> it, because they don't want to believe it, you see, yeah. because their neighbor works for a corporation or their yeah. son works for a corporation, or maybe they did. And they say, well, gee, there's no way a corporation would do such a, a horrendous thing. But yeah. it happens every day. It happens I, in my law firm right now. I, I, I can't even count the number of, uh, of cases like that, whether it's talcum powder or uh, 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 Texaterra. You, you know, there's all of these, or Yaz or Pradaxa. Every single day, it's the same formula. And that formula is this. An MBA is moving through the system. The MBA used to be with a corporation 25 years as CEO, okay, 20, 25 years. Now yeah. they're there three years. So what they try to do is maximize the profits as much as they can in those three years and leave the mess for the next MBA, for the next CEO. Mm-hmm. And so it's, mm-hmm. they're moving through quickly. They're trying to maximize their 10K so they can maximize their golden parachute and get out of there with a lot of money. And the unfortunate thing is we all suffer from it. We all suffer for it. The unfortunate thing is, is mainstream corporate media, corporate media is dead. Corporate news media is the most useless entity ever, and they will never tell the story until after the story is already, until the rest of the world knows about the story. For example, DuPont's a great example. The media has known, national media has known about the DuPont story, about 70,000 people, 70,000 that have been affected by C8. 3,000 have already filed lawsuits where they have cancer or ulcerative colitis. Okay, the news media, corporate media, I call it corporate media, it's a dying, it's it's not social media, it's corporate media. The corporate media knew about this story eight years ago. And refused to report it because DuPont does so much advertising with ABC and NBC and MSNBC. And, uh, you know, it's why, it's why Ed Schultz was run away from MSNBC. It's why Cenk Uger left MSNBC. Uh, I could go on forever. MSNBC is like the poster board for this story. Mm-hmm. You see, MSNBC wouldn't run these stories because the cat's on the 50th floor. The MBAs were saying, well, we can't run a story about DuPont. My God, if we do... They're not going to advertise with us anymore. So, so, so what we used to think, we used to think, for example, is if you and I sit here and talk right now, you probably believe MSNBC is a progressive vehicle for the news. It's not. Mm-hmm. It's Comcast. They've fired all of their people. It's, wow. nothing, it's, nothing, more than DuPont, it's nothing more than Fox. And, 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 and we think that we're being told the story. And yeah. we're not told the story. You're telling the story right now, Beth, that nobody else will hear, but for your effort to tell the story. Well, you know what's so fascinating about that is how that's all twisted, because the uh, conservatives 
have twisted the story into making it look like the media is so liberal. Oh, yeah. And that well. the problem is the liberal media. I saw the same thing, oh, God, how many years ago? Oh, 50 years ago, when I saw a reporter of the New York Times reporting a story. I was there. We were at Columbia. There was a big demonstration. Everybody was getting beat up, taken to the hospital and, and all of that. And I was participating. I wasn't at Columbia, but I was helping. And I saw that reporter. And the next morning, the story came out and the story was in there. And by the next edition, and I know that you would believe this, but most everybody else wouldn't, the story was gone. Of course. The of very course. next edition, right? So, and I was a witness to this, right? So, so, mean, so what do we do, Beth? We, social media is the only answer here. Shank Uger, uh, what he's doing with the Young Turks, what we're doing with Ring of Fire. You should yeah. see the traffic we have. It's the, the traffic on Ring of Fire alone is extraordinary. Free speech TV. You, let me tell you this much. Do you realize that as you and I sit here and talk right now, what do you think the most liberal, uh, completely unregulated, where we can say whatever the hell we're supposed to say on TV, what do you think that network would be? If I were to ask you, what do you think it would be today? I wouldn't know. It's Russian television. Russian oh, te- oh, my God. RT Network America. As a matter of fact, Ed Schultz just went to work with them. I'm a, I'm a, uh, I, I, I'm a commentator with, with them. I'm, uh, Tom Hartman is there. Uh, Abby Martin started there. I mean, look at, the, look, yeah. at, uh, look at how crazy that is. Russian television America yeah. is where we tell our stories now. Because we can't tell them on a thing like MSNBC. Do you realize <laughs> if I called MSNBC and I said, you know what, Mr. Producer, Mrs. Producer, I have a case where this pill is killing 1,000 people a year. Here's the proof. Here are the documents. Here's their admission that, yes, we know that. And we'd like you to run a story on it. But let's say that the story was, was about Merck. Let's say it was about Pfizer. Or, glad, or, or any of the major pharmaceutical companies. They won't run the story. They refuse to run the story. And they are the only, they're, they're, they're supposed to be a news service. The story would run on Russian television. The story would run on free TV. The story would run on Al Jazeera when they were around. The story would run with you. They'd run with me. What's that telling you? It's telling you that social media is replacing the importance of corporate media. Corporate media, honest to God, Beth, it's dead or dying. It yeah. is dead or dying. How about, how about Melissa Perry here just, just oh, losing I her? Oh, I saw that, yes. So, so that, why, why is that? Why, yeah. why, did, why did they go through Oberman and Tom Do- and, and, and Donahue and uh, Oberman, Donahue? I, I've even forgotten. Al Sharpton, Ed Schultz. Uh, Jesus, I can't even remember all the liberals that they fired because those liberals have now been replaced with talking heads like Joe Scarborough and Mika Brzezinski who are going to say whatever the network wants them to say. So the point being, the point being what you're doing matters. What, what we do, social media matters now because it's the replacement of this dysfunctional thing called corporate media. That is so true. And Mike, you know, uh, we're not big, but we are honest. And if you ever have a story, you can call us. You can send me an email. You know, we have the news of the inner revolution every week. 
if there's someone you think that uh, I should interview, I'd like you to send them over to us. We promote everything on Facebook. We are reaching more and more people. And, uh, you know, I, I want to be part of the solution. And so, you don't have to be big. Let, let me tell you why I love what you do. Let me tell you what it, what it is. <laughs> what, 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 the first book I ever wrote was called In Search of Atticus Finch. And it was, uh, the foreword on the book was written by uh, a fellow named Morris Dees, who was the Southern Poverty Law Center. And Morris uh, one time was giving a talk. And what I took from the talk is that we don't, that culture doesn't change in big leaps. Civil rights case, the civil rights issue, for example, it didn't change with Rosa Parks alone. No. It changed. It changed by uh, a protest that took place in South Florida, in in Alabama, and Mississippi, and Tennessee, where police officers were beating people over the head with clubs. Where where people with courage, people like yourself, stood up and said, "Damn it, I've had enough." And they said, "All that came together. All that comes together. It all culminates. It all meets in the same path. And when it meets in the same path, you have this giant leap." This giant leap that culture takes, yeah. and it's all of these cumulative things. This each and every little thing adds to that. That's why what you do matters. And, and so, what, yes, and what everybody else who's listening to the show, no matter how large or small what you do is, it matters. It's what Hegel called quantity to quality. That's you have, right. You have the the flame under the pot and the water gets hotter and hotter and suddenly it turns to steam and I want to be around when it turns to steam and I just turned 71 <laughs> yesterday so I got to live quite a bit longer James would you tell us what we're tackling next week and then we can come back and say goodbye and Mike I can't believe it's over so fast go, yeah, go it James it did James. it's been very very inspiring Mike <laughs> very inspiring this show okay coming up next week when common sense is subversive an interview with Richard Wolff about ego and cooperation. Many of us believe cooperation is essential to co-creating a world that is more prosperous, compassionate, and productive. Yet this very idea has been labeled socialist and therefore subversive. Our culture has been steeped in ego and competition so long they seem inevitable, but they aren't. Greed and disconnection may be prevalent among certain people, but cooperation and love are just as natural and are a better basis for an economy and a society. One economist who has long supported this idea is our guest, Professor Richard Wolff, an advocate and student of the economics of cooperation. In this show, we will talk about the cooperative movement flourishing around the world, including the U.S. In addition, we'll talk about the ego and how it can undermine any social system. If you think our world needs to be turned upside down, tune into this show. Let's all be subversive for the common good and learn more about the potluck revolution, which is as dangerous as apple pie. And now, for a final word from Beth. Oh, I'm so sorry the show is coming to a close. Mike, if there's anything that we can do to help you with what you're doing, or any way that we can work together, please let us know. I so appreciate what you're doing. I hope that everybody feels Encourage that there are people like you in the world and tell everybody about your radio show and your TV in the 30 seconds we have left. Yeah, it's Free Speech TV is where we where you see us every day. Uh, every day. I, I, I'm a common, I do commentary for uh, RT Network, Ring of Fire, the Ring of Fire Radio. 
Go there every day. You'll see the issues that we're talking about discussed in some form or fashion. And we'll be talking about, Beth, we'll be talking about the very issues that you talk about and that are so important. Thank you. Is there anything that you would like to say to people? Because I think we have 10 seconds left. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Get out and get active and believe that what Bernie is telling you really does matter, whether you vote for him or not, what he's saying matters. That's right. And we have, you know, oh, I remember what I wanted to say to you about one of the problems that Obama had. We were not mobilized. You can't have a leader without people mobilized to push that leader forward and to support that leader. We've got to take it on ourselves, and that's the inner revolution. So thank you so much, Mike. I wish I could hug and kiss you, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> uh, and we'll see you all next week. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Inner Revolutionary Radio with Beth Green and James Maynard. The next episode will broadcast live next Thursday at 6 p.m. Eastern Time, 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And don't forget Inner Revolutionary TV on voiceamerica.tv. Think outside the box and join us.